You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Becky and I really, really love you. I want to just say that for the last two plus years, even before we arrived uh, next Thursday, Friday will be now two years that we have been in Colorado Springs. We arrived uh, and started here July 1st of 08. Our son Daniel and his twin sisters, Christine and Jessica, have been here basically for about five years and serving and being a part of the church, and it's our honor. But even before we arrived, the Lord really put you, the mill, the 20-somethings, on our heart, college and 20-somethings, and we have really prayed for you and sought God for the will of God in your lives and in your marriages that are... How many are married today? Raise your hands. And the rest of you, we're hopeful and believing God for you and with you. I want to say that this is a priority at New Life Church, the future of this church and the future of families in the kingdom of God. And I believe in our country because the United States of America and the West in general has has suffered when it has come to the topic of successful long-term marriages. So it's been in our hearts. We've shared our hearts with you for three weeks, and today we want to kind of leave you with a couple of great ideas that it's not really that difficult. I think you possibly, as I did, my mom and dad struggled in their marriage. They were married 21 years before my father was killed in an oil rig explosion. The company he worked for, Amoco Petroleum, became BP. Shortly after, he was killed in the explosion on an Amoco rig. British Petroleum bought the whole company and has, for the last many years, been the conglomerate that assumed that oil exploration uh, division where my father worked. They were married 21 years, didn't have a good marriage, didn't have a happy home, fought, there was domestic violence. There was a divorce action filed when I was 11. And I remember the feeling I had when, they, when my mother showed me in the paper that she had filed for divorce. They never were divorced. There was an 11-year-old boy in their home that kept saying, can't we work this out? Can't we work this out? And I watched them struggle and up until the very time that my father was killed in that explosion. Becky and I celebrated our 22nd anniversary a few years ago, 11 years ago, and I remember looking at her and saying, we have now officially been married longer than my parents were. Really made me feel mature. This summer we're going to Idaho to celebrate her parents' 60th wedding anniversary. And it inspires me. It makes me want to hug my wife, and stay close, and thank God well, for... get over here and hug me. Well, I'm man. coming. Don't just, just talk I'm about it. Get uh, me all worked up and just stay over there. Patience is a virtue <laughs> and a fruit of the Spirit. But today, as we get started, here's our topic, a happy marriage. It's not that difficult. It is hard in the world. It is hard when the culture is telling you everything except the truth. And I want to encourage you to seek God 
from your heart. The Psalms teach us. Psalm 37 says he gives us the desires of our heart. He places desire in there. He says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. As you seek God, as you find your delight in him, he begins to put desire in you. It's not just granting a wish list that you've had of this, 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 and this, and he has to be a millionaire. And she has to have this kind of uh, career and figure and, and uh, lifestyle. God will put desire in your heart for what he wants you to have in your heart. So, a few years ago, my wife conducted a very a scientific survey. A very scientific survey. Tell them how you conducted it. Well, I sent an email to about, oh, 50 or 60 of our um, Christian couple friends. And I said, I asked them in this survey to just reply back to me and to, for the women to tell me um, what it was, what were some of the things that their, the top three things that their husband could do to make them feel loved and then for the men to reply the top three things that their wife could do to express love. So um, it was kind of when I was thinking about this whole difficult thing. Now, I, I want to clarify something. It's not difficult in a complicated kind of way, but it is a lot of work to have a happy marriage. It's daily effort. And uh, if you think that it's not going to see for me... The, I thought the work was getting him to marry me. No, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't like, I didn't embarrass myself as far as hoping he would marry me. I mean, it was all very, it wasn't obvious that I wanted I didn't chase him around campus and throw myself at his feet and say, please marry me, marry me, I'm a desperate woman. It wasn't like that, but I really, first of all, I knew. Did I tell you the first time I saw him? Oh, my goodness, four weeks, and I haven't told this story. So we were freshmen at Oral Roberts University, and I came from northern Idaho, a little Indian reservation of 500 people, to Tulsa, you know, big city. It was the first time I had ever, uh, I'd never lived in such a place. And uh, so the first Sunday of my freshman year, and I was, a, I was 17. I graduated when I was 17 because I was gifted. And not really, it's just... I graduated when I was 17, and I wasn't that gifted. Yeah. Well, I wasn't either. But I was 17 when I left Idaho and moved to Tulsa. And uh, so my first Sunday, I went out to uh, the churches would send buses to line up out in front of campus uh, to transport the ORU students who didn't have cars to church. So I was all alone, and I went out, and I saw this bus you know, about 15 buses lined up, and there was a bus, and it said Sheridan Assembly. So I had kind of been in an Assembly of God church, and so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll go there. So I got on the bus, went to Sunday school, and I was so, I felt so alone. I didn't know anyone, and, and then I left Sunday school, and I went into the church service, 
And uh, I was sitting on about the third row, and the choir marched out. This is, you know, how choirs used to march out and in robes. And so in the very back row, right in the center, was this tall, dark-haired, handsome guy. And I looked at him, and uh, I, I had this thought. If I could marry him, I would be the happiest person in the whole world. And I didn't know he was an ORU student. That was his home church. I found out all this, you know, like over a year later. And, uh, but what I realized later was really God was speaking to me um, that I was going to marry that guy and be the happiest person in the whole world. And I just thought that was the neatest thing. So... Where was I going with that? I don't know, but you want to hear the first time I ever saw her? Okay, so, uh, oh, I know, I, w- I know what I was saying. I didn't chase him. I'm going to let you do that. But I didn't chase him, and it, I didn't embarrass myself and, and all of that. Um, I didn't know he was a student. It just represented for me, coming from uh, a little tiny town, it represented for me what... Um, what a wonderful thing God could do in my life and give me such a wonderful husband. So Seven months after that service where I was standing in the back row of our church choir, a girl who had been my accompanist, I was a voice student, and my accompanist was uh, a girl from New York, and she called me at spring break, and she, just before spring break she said, uh, could you take me to the airport on uh, Friday after class, I'm going to go home for spring break. I said, I'd be happy to. I was kind of excited. She was calling me, you know. I got to the dorm, backed my car, backed my van up, walked in, and there's all this luggage in the lobby. And I thought, that's a lot of luggage. And I looked at this girl. I said, this all yours? She said, no, there's a girl uh, from my floor that's going to go home with me for spring break. But I didn't pay any attention. I thought, oh, hi, nice to meet you. I didn't pay any attention to you either. Well, excuse me. So I loaded them up, took them to the airport. Fast forward now to the next school year, about six months later. First chapel of the year. The president of the college preaching a wonderful message. And at the end he said, I just felt this morning that there would be some that I would call for prayer. And he began to name some very specific things going on in our lives. And he said, not everybody in this room is going to come forward. About 3,000 students there. He said, if that's you, step forward right now to the platform. It was me. I stepped forward off about the third row and went and stood behind the pulpit. And the president said, take the hand of the person next to you and let's pray. There's about 60 students on the stage out of 3,000. And we're praying. And he's praying. And he's ministering to those specific things that he felt like he was supposed to pray for. And he said, amen and amen. And I went, amen. So I walked out of chapel and called the girl from New York and said, hey, what was that girl's name that you took home with you for spring break six months ago? So I called her. And I said, you would, that afternoon, I said, would you like to go about, I called her about 5 o'clock, would, would you like to go have dinner in the cafeteria. 
Well, I knew she had a meal ticket and I had a meal ticket. It was all paid for. And she said, No. It was just because I, in, back in the day we had to wear dresses, if you can imagine, to the cafeteria. And I was already in my jeans and I didn't want to get dressed back up to go to the cafeteria. So I was persistent. The next week I called her and I said, hey, listen, uh, my mother had been in the hospital and she had been now in an extended care facility. And I had to have where some guests were coming from out of town to stay in her home, my home. And I, so I called Becky. I said, uh, this Dave Grothy again. How are you? Called you last week. Uh, there's some guests coming out of, from out of town, and I need to go clean my mother's house. Would you like to go help me clean my mother's house? I'll buy you lunch. And I thought, this is a perfect opportunity to show my domestic prowess. <laughs> So I said yes. Boy, can she fold laundry. Oh, man. So that was the beginning of our... 33 years of wedded bliss. Yeah, well, that was was 36 years ago almost, 35 years ago. And uh, we went after we cleaned the house and got it just smelling really good and vacuumed up and all the towels folded. And we went to a place and had a grilled cheese sandwich. Yeah. So here we are today. So what I was saying before we launched into all that was it's, it's not complicated, but it's a lot of work. And I, so I thought just that whole three and a half years of dating and preparing for our wedding, I thought that was the work. And then once we got married, then I thought now we can just relax and enjoy a lifetime together. But... That's not really how it is. It's um, daily making an effort to build a wonderful, loving relationship. We had the uh, Good Morning. What was that? What's that? To, what was on TV today? Oh, the CBS. Morning Sunday morning something with somebody was on today. Charles Osgood or somebody, and. Uh, I had that on while I was getting ready this morning. I had Fred Price on first, so I got, you know, kind of tanked up spiritually, and then I switched it over to CBS Morning Show. But anyway, they they had this story about love on it. And one of the things they said was that it takes five positive comments or interactions uh, to make up for one negative so like uh, saying, you look so nice today, honey. And I always tell him that, not just before Sunday school. But I always tell him, you look so nice. And, and I love your hands. And um, you, he has great legs. He has the best legs. They, they just go forever. You know, there's just like, I love his legs. And um, I really do. Look at his grin. He he gets all shy when I say that, and he'll say, oh, no, they're not that great. But they really are. I love his legs, and I love his hands. Um, we're not going to tell you what he loves about me. We talked about that last week. So anyway, 
So the five things. So I sent this email to my 50 Christian couple friends and said, what is it that your husband can do to express his love? And then what can your wife do? So this is the results that came back. And it was almost across the board unanimous. The first one from the ladies was rub my back or rub my feet. If you're married, if you're not married, don't tell me how much you enjoy that. But if you're married, tell me, ladies, how much you enjoy that. Yes? Raise your hands. Yes, okay. The second one was help me around the house. Now, sometimes Dave will say to me, um, he'll get real romantic and hug and... and I'll say, honey, I just want to love you. And so I say, (laughs) wonderful, would you go empty the dishwasher? (laughs) And he's so... Wasn't what I had in mind. Wasn't what he had in mind. But, you know, okay, if you really want to show me, that's really what would show me and then the third one uh from these ladies was take me on a date or do you know take me somewhere special or another one was write me sweet notes and uh so that's pretty uncomplicated isn't it our relationship started out with sweet notes on a regular daily basis We were leaving notes for each other in the dorm. It was kind of lopsided. Yeah, on a regular daily basis, I got more notes from her than she did from me. (laughs) I found we were going through some boxes looking for pictures for Anna's wedding. And so I found the box of notes. We kept all these little just notes that we would leave at the dorm desk, you know, for each other. So I found this box. So there's this box that's about this tall and about like this of notes that I left him. And I kept them all. And he kept them all, and that was very sweet. And then I found the box, and then in that box was the box of notes he wrote me. A small rubber band around five or six. <laughs> and it was about this big. You know, it was this nice little, I think it had had a corsage in it. Oh, great. One. <laughs> so ladies oh, great. responded with these kind of top four answers. And they're not that hard, not that difficult to. And they well, don't cost anything. To, yeah. No, no expense involved in a back rub or a foot rub. Becky broke her foot a year ago, July 15th. She's had surgery twice on her right foot. She had a screw and a washer inserted in her metatarsal. And, and it was a long process. And since that time, a foot rub has been extremely relaxing to her and to help some of the rehab just to get the feeling back on that side of the scar. And rubbing her feet is something that I have done on a regular basis, sometimes when she's asked and sometimes when I've offered. And even before she's broke, broke her foot. But my cousin is married to a veterinarian. They've been a, in the, bought this vet practice 30 years ago and been to town vet, large animals primarily, not dogs and cats. What does this have to do with my foot? Well, large animals. My cousin, my cousin. At her birthday, Becky noticed her feet and said, My goodness, Debbie, you have the most beautifully soft feet. And she said, Well, Chuck rubs them every night. And I I thought to myself, Yeah, he's a vet. He probably uses the bag balm he puts on the cows, you know, to soften those feet up. And I looked at him and he said, Yeah, that's right. That's really a good silicone-based, you know, I don't know what that has to do with Becky, but her feet are very soft and, and get a lot of attention. Now, what did the men say in this survey? What do you think? This was the women. The men said, 
Oh, the, there were a few wives that wanted a shopping trip. Becky's not a, a heavy-duty shopper. She, she gets what she needs and comes home. But women think all their husbands want is sex, and they're pretty accurate. That's just the differences between men and women, the way we're wired. And the next thing on the men's list was quality time alone with their wives. No kids, just the ability to find a moment without the children where they could spend some time together alone. I think, husbands, you need to know that your children, wives, you need to hear this, your children are just passing through your marriage. Your children are just there in your home for a temporary period of time. You need to make sure that the husband and the wife you started with are the husband and the wife you have after the children are gone. I don't know what your experience was, but after we graduated from college, I, couldn't, I didn't have enough fingers and toes to count all of my friends' parents that were divorcing. All, they raised all their kids, got them all out of school successfully, got most of them married off, and now they look at each other after all the, the child raising, and they, they say, well, uh, who, who are you? Your face is kind of familiar, but I sure don't know you anymore. You need to make it a priority that after the children are gone, your marriage is as stronger, stronger than it was at the beginning. Quality time alone together is an important part of this discussion for men. Now, I put this on the first outline, and I want to reiterate this idea. Ladies, go back and read 1 Peter 3, verse 1 through 6. He talks primarily to women in those first six verses, where he talks about your beauty. And your beauty is not because you've got fixie hair and jewelry and makeup. He's not saying that if the barn needs painting, don't paint it. Paint it if it needs painting. But he says your beauty is not because of your outward adornment. Your beauty is because you've got a beautiful spirit. You've, you're pretty on the inside. You're gorgeous in your heart. Your life from the inside out is because you're beautiful. And then he says to men in verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And here are the different translations. I've kind of put them all together. The King James says, Dwell with her according to knowledge. Guys look at, at this and they think, Knowledge? I, I don't even have a clue, let alone any knowledge about her. He says, Treat her with understanding as you live together. Live with her with an intelligent recognition of the marriage relation. You should be thoughtful of your wife, is another translation. One, I think the NIV says, live with her considerately. Dwell with her considerately. So, be good husbands to your wives. The rest of the verse says, honor her, delight in her. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers be not hindered. One other explanation of that joint heirs, another translation says, she is your joint heir, husband. Be thoughtful of her because she is called along with you to inherit this blessing. He says in the message, you're equals. Not just in, in a in an emotional way, but you're equal spiritually. God has called her. And I want to encourage men 
to see her in this way. He says, uh, honor her as one who shares this blessing with you. Honor her and respect her. So I think in, in this way, husbands have got to develop an ability to think about someone other than themselves and to be able to look at your wife as a joint heir of the blessing of life with you. Now, we talked about it not being difficult, but it does require an intentional effort. It, it requires more effort to live by the Spirit and in the Spirit than it does just to live by your flesh. What are some of your um, tendencies or weaknesses or kind of some of your flesh things? Like how many of you kind of get angry? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you are, um, how many of you when you get upset cry? And no man, there's a man, there's a real man back there who admits that he cries. Way to go, Aaron. So some get angry, some cry. How many of you pout? Raise your hand a little higher. All the pouters, raise your hand. Okay, so uh, so some get angry, some pout, some cry. Uh, some give the silent treatment. Do you do the silent treatment? A little higher. Okay, Erica, I can't imagine that about you. Joe, what is it you do? Do you get angry? Do you pout? Do you cry? Silence? Okay. For how long? Years. <laughs> so it's good to kind of identify those things about yourself, how you typically respond, and then make an on-purpose decision to not do that. If you know that um, my husband, because he, I think we've decided it's because he was an only child, we'll blame it on only child, but he needs to blame somebody. Somebody has to take Somebody the has blame. to take the responsibility. Blame, honey, it's blame. Oh, responsibility is a nice blame. word, euphemism. Somebody must be held responsible. Who left the light on? I don't know. Who left it on? Who who was up here last and who left the light on? I don't know. Just turn it off. Who? But who left it on? Just turn it off. But who left it on? Just turn the light off. But he has to find some... Right, Jessica? He has to find some blame somewhere. And I don't know why that is. But, um, so, what do I do? <laughs> I mean, I said your blame thing, so what do I do? I don't pout. Becky makes it a point to let everybody else in the room know that she's working and nobody else is. Yeah. Not necessarily verbally. But if there are dishes in the sink, she'll rattle them real loud and shut the door on the dishwasher really strong. I do. I do. 
and bang the cabinets and the dryer door and, and load a, have a load of laundry and kind of walk back and forth in front of everyone before I settle to fold it. Just guilt trip. That's what it is. It's a guilt yes, trip. Yes, yes. So that's what I do. So identify what you do and then ask the Lord to help you in that and on purpose change things so you're living more by the spirit than you are by the flesh. The carnal now, man. Let's talk about the carnal man. That I was going to say. Some people in, go on missions and have an interpreter, and then others teach the Mill Sunday School and have an interrupter. Yes, and I'm the interrupter. But I want you to talk to him about how you got to know me. When you said dwell together in a, in a knowledgeable way, and uh, how did you do that? You have to ask. You have to ask questions that may seem uh, perfunctory, like, well, duh, you ought to know that. Most guys, when, when we think about dwelling with her or your wife, according to knowledge, you don't have that knowledge unless you ask. You cannot read her mind because it often, it changes. It often changes. So it's a continual process of asking informative questions and listening on purpose, not just by accident. Listening on purpose. Now, the carnal man does not perceive the things of God. And here's what we've got to do. If you try to have your marriage lived out in the flesh, that's all you're going to have. You're just going to have a carnal marriage. But if you will approach each other in the spirit and dwell with each other from a spiritual perspective, from the inside out, not just from the flesh in. Here's a couple of ideas from 1 Corinthians 2.14. The unscriptural self, or the carnal man... Just the unspiritual self, just as it is by nature, can't receive the things of God's spirit. There's no capacity for them. They seem to be so much silliness. Spirit can be known only by spirit and God's spirit and our spirits in open communion. This is a spiritual union. It's not just one flesh, although Jesus said the two shall become one. The two will be, be joined together in an intimate way. But our bodies, it's, is, we're more than our bodies. We're more than just our emotions. We are a spirit. And when we join ourselves and become one, I want to encourage you, that, that idea from Jesus, the two shall become one, the, the active, operative word there is become. For the rest of your lives, you will be coming. Become one. It's an ongoing, present tense verb. Now, Here's some ideas about living out of your flesh and in the spirit. If you want to be first, Jesus said, you must be last. If you want to live, you must first die to yourself. If you want to receive, you must give. If you want to be exalted, you must first humble yourself. These are kind of counterintuitive ideas. They're spiritual ideas. And you look at this from the flesh and you say, well, that's crazy. If I want something, I'll push my way up to get it. If I want to go to the head of the line, I will. If I want to butt in line and go to the front of any company, I'll just walk all over anybody I can to get there. We don't say but. Okay. Excuse me. And if you want to be great, you must be a servant. If you want to sit at the front, what does Jesus say in Luke 14? Don't go up and take the best seat. Go back in the back and take the lowest table. And then when he who invited you comes back there and says, come up higher, my friend. Come up here and sit in the front. 
then the people you're sitting with, he says, will embrace you as a leader. I think the King James says, thou shalt have worship in the presence of those that sit with thee. You'll have the respect of the people that you've wanted. And how do I get respect? Well, you just go take the back seat and let somebody point you out as a leader and say, come up here and lead. If you want to increase, Paul says, you must scatter. Sowing and reaping generously and reaping generously. Sowing uh, poorly and reaping a poor harvest. These are spiritual ideas that you need to apply to your marriage. I think sometimes people are naive when they get married like I mentioned about me thinking now that now the work is over and I'll just kick back and relax and so sometimes young young couples when they hit a snag early in their marriage then they think uh, I must have made a mistake or I must have married the wrong person or you know they didn't have any idea that it was going to require work so then when it uh, they hit that first bump, then s- sometimes their commitment is in question. Or they think it's not supposed to be like this, so something's wrong with him or with her. Uh, but really, if you can understand that it is a lifetime of effort and a lifetime of work, then when you hit difficult times, you just realize this is something we're just going to need to press through, and it won't shake you. Um, Yesterday I was talking with one of our daughters and I mentioned a friend of ours in Tulsa who just uh, left her third marriage. And and she's just a young woman. And uh, we were talking about the commitment that it requires. Uh, It's that we don't have an out. You know, we don't get to just say, gee, it's not what I expected, and he's not as nice as I thought he was going to be, or she's not, or she's not, quote, meeting my needs, or, you know, the different things that we hear, and just realize it's a, it's a lifetime commitment. Back on our list here of what it requires, sometimes we're stubborn, and I think Becky could own this a little bit. She'll say, you know, I just like to win. I just like to be right. And that's kind of her default. I remember one time I walked through the bathroom. And she says, look at that curtain in that window. That curtain, it was kind of on a rod here at the top covering the tub window and a rod at the bottom. She said, that, that curtain's upside down. Dave, turn that around. So I obliged her. I took the rods out, turned the curtain around, had hems at the top and the bottom, put it back up in the window only. Well, then I, as I walked back through again, I thought, oh, no. It, it was right the first time. So I said, oh, honey, I was wrong. That, it, it was correct the first time. Would you put it back? And he just kind of staggered backwards, and he said, say that again. And I said, well, I was wrong. It was right. Say that again. <laughs> and so I said, I was wrong. And he said, you know what? We're going to leave that just like it is. As a memorial to the one time you were wrong. And I do really, we are all a competitive bunch in our family. And, uh, and I do like to be right, but I think we all like to be right. And uh, so I admit that. And sometimes I'll press and press and press and press because I know that um, I'll wear him down eventually. 
and that happens a lot. So. so in addition to stubbornness, are you selfish? Ask yourself, am I more selfless with my mate, with my girlfriend, with my boyfriend? Am I selfless or selfish? Always has to be my way or the highway for you. Is it, is it in your spiritual nature mm-hmm. to be selfless? God so loved that he gave. Jesus so loved us that he gave his life. He gave the Holy Spirit. Their, their representation of love is always in giving. So I'm going to ask you, are you selfish or selfless? And then in this idea of expectations, I have met with many uh, young couples in the last two years, both premarital couples and newlywed couples, newlywed in the sense of maybe three or four years married. No children. And their expectations were so unrealistic. Well, I'm just going to get married and then i be able to put my feet up and she will take care of my every need. Read, wait on me hand and foot. That is not what marriage is about. You're there to serve each other, yes, unselfishly. But if you're going in selfishly to have all your needs met and all your expectations realized... Think another thought. It's not going to happen. Because marriage is based on a mutual submission. Ephesians 5 says, giving yourselves, submitting yourselves one to another in reverence and the fear of the Lord. Now, here's three essentials that I want to just encourage you as we wrap this day up and this whole month. Number one, Joshua 24:15. He brought him out, Moses brought him out of slavery and into the promised land, toward the promised land. And Joshua was the one that took Moses' place and took them on into the promised land. And after they got there into the promised land, he said to them, Okay, look around. Choose this day whom you will serve. Joshua 24. He said, You're either going to serve the gods back over there where we were in slavery, or you're going to serve the gods in this land. You've got to choose. But then he makes this amazing proclamation of his faith. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's one of my favorite verses. I have got to tell you, if you don't make this choice in your marriage, you will not have a successful commitment to each other. As for me, a husband, as for me, a wife, we will serve the Lord. Have a Christ-centered home. Number two, make the commitment to be committed. I'm amazed at, oh, we stand up and we pledge our vows and we give rings and we make vows to each other. And then at some point, some sooner, some later, your commitments and your vows will be tested. The Old Testament is very strong. I didn't list these verses, but all through the Proverbs and the Ecclesiastes, it says it's better to not make a vow than to make one that you will not keep. It's better to not make a vow than to, to make something and say something that you have no intention of following through on. The feeling of love comes and goes. The emotion, the dopamine in your brain, the hand-holding, the longing looks at each other romantically, the embrace. And I, I get this all the time with premarital couples. Oh, we're going to have sex every day for the rest of our life. 
<laughs> that's our that's our expectation. We're just going to go to bed and wake up happy every day. There are going to be mornings you wake up and you don't feel romantic. There are going to be nights you fall in bed and the last thing on your mind is making love. Because you're just exhausted. But an unselfish couple will look at each other and say, what does he need? What, do, what does she need? How can I respond? What would be the most wonderful thing that I could do right now? It might be just hold each other with no sex. It might be just fall asleep holding each other's hand. It might be rubbing her feet until she falls asleep or rubbing her low back with no sexual overtones expected. What is your commitment? It's going to be there only if you decide to commit to commitment. Oh, I married the wrong person. I've realized now seven months into my marriage, I, I really married the wrong person. Now, what you're saying is I'm selfish and I'm not having my own way like I thought I was going to have it. Your commitment to that vow you made, to that person you stood up with or proposed to or accepted, yes, I will be your wife. Where is that commitment seven months, seven years, on, through till death do you part? And then communication. Becky and I are still learning how to listen to each other without being defensive. We're still learning how to talk to each other. Make this your prayer. Lord, help me to understand. And Lord, help me to be understood. Some of you are not com good communicators. You can't tell anybody what you're thinking or what you're feeling. You've not have ever developed a vocabulary to be able to express yourself. Uh, uh, it just hurts. I, I, I don't know how to tell you. Just, <laughs> and yes, there is emotion involved, but there are also, like we tell our grandchildren, use your words. <laughs> use your words. Can you express yourself? I've got a book that I found in a secondhand bookstore that I just love. It's called The Must Words. It's just a big, big book of words that you must incorporate into your vocabulary to be a good communicator, the must words. We don't ever, we try not to use the words always and never. We've kind of cut those out of our vocabulary. Well, you always and you never, those are not productive communication words. Learn how to express yourself effectively and learn how to listen. The second and most important part of communication is listening. Now, here's Deuteronomy. It's kind of a funny verse in the King James. If you go back and read it, he said, a man must cheer up his wife, which he has taken. It's that whole verse that says a man, once he gets married, is excused from service in the military for a full year <laughs> under the Mosaic Law. But what's his responsibility for that year is to cheer up his wife, which he has taken. I'm still cheering her up, trying to cheer her up 33 years later. It's not that she's sad. Not that she's down in the dumps. That's not what the word means. The NIV says to bring happiness to the wife that he's married. The message, I like this. When a man takes a wife, new wife, he's not to go out with the army or to be given any other business or work duties. He gets one year off simply to be at home making his wife happy. <laughs> oh, just imagine. 
Well, the reality of it is we both have a career. We both have employment. We both have responsibilities and roles to fulfill in our marriage. When we got married, three years in, Becky became pregnant. And five months into her pregnancy, it was diagnosed that she was nine months size and had twins. It was a joyous and very magical time in our marriage. But as it became obvious through her pregnancy and toward the end, the doctor wanted her to carry it full to full term so the babies would not be small, premature babies. So Becky, toward the end of her pregnancy, uh, resigned from her career. She was an educator, had a full-time position in the public schools, and later as principal of our Christian school that we founded back in Tulsa, now has 1,500 students, K through 12. It's a very nice and large private school, private Christian school that competes educationally and academically and in the arts and in the sports with all the public schools in the city. Becky was the principal of that school. She made $3,000 a year more than I did. I just worked on the church staff as worship pastor. And when she retired from her career to go home and get ready to have babies, our income was cut by more than 50%. It was a very tenuous time. I wondered, how we, we got a house payment. We got, pay, we got bills to pay. How are we going to do this? And you know we never missed one bill, never missed one payment. I don't know how it happened. And within a year's time, I was making more money than I'd ever made in my life. Three years down the road, I was making almost as much as the two of us were combined before. And the Lord will always take care of you if you'll just trust him. That's a, not a cliche. Trust in the Lord, and he will direct your paths. Lean not to your own understanding. He'll guide you. He'll take care of it. You don't always have to understand it. Just trust him. Now, Matthew Henry's commentary on that verse in Deuteronomy says this. It's of great consequence that love be kept up between husband and wife that they carefully avoid everything which might make them strange to one another. Don't become that couple that at some point look at each other and think we don't have anything in common. To look at each other and say, Where, where's that person I married? I want to tell you, don't live together and lead separate lives. Live together and be one. Here's the verse. I didn't put it on the outline, but I want you to look it up and write it down, read it and meditate on it. Matthew 19.5. Become, the two shall become one flesh. Underline in your thinking the word become. Thinking about each other while you're away. There are times when Becky and I, more Becky than me, I'm honestly telling you, she'll look at me and say, did you think about me today? And I know what that means. Maybe we were romantic that morning or we had uh, a quiet time intimately together the night before and woke up and then she'll say to me, did you think about me today? Yes. <laughs> Broke out in a sweat a couple of times thinking about you. So this is, the kind of, this is the kind of relationship you want to have with your spouse. One where you're together, you become one with her and one with him. And together even when you're apart. You know, I, I don't know if I told you this and, and we're going to close, but 
there has never been a time, I can say this in, in our marriage, and I think Dave can say this too, but never a time where I didn't trust him. And never a time where uh, I was insecure in our relationship. And that is a gift that you can give to each other. And I've, I've tried to live my life in a way that he would never have to be concerned about whether or not he could trust me. And that is because, first of all, we've made that commitment. But secondly, because we treat each other in a way that uh, builds a security between us in our relationship. Would you read this? This is the message, and, and Becky and I have shared ideas from this verse. It's our final verse, and here we go. Go ahead and read it. Summing up, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. That goes for all of you, no exceptions, no retaliation, no sharp-tongued sarcasm. Instead, bless, that's your job, to bless. You'll be a blessing and also get a blessing. The verse goes on and says, Whoever wants to embrace life and see the day fill up with good, here's what you do. Say nothing evil or hurtful. Snub evil and cultivate good. Run after peace for all your worth. God looks on all this with approval, listening and responding well to what he's asked. But he turns his back on those who do evil things. So here's what you do. Go after God. Go after the word of God. Go after being a doer of the word, not just a hearer only in your relationships. And you'll have a strong, committed, successful, long-term marriage. Let's pray. Lord, we commit these ideas to you. And we commit our future to you. We pray right now for our wife. We pray for our husband. We may not know their name, but we pray for them right now. We thank you that they're in our future. We trust you, Lord, for your timing and for your plan. And for those of us now, Lord, in, in uh, singleness, in our career, we thank you that your will is accomplished and fulfilled in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been good. I've, I've, I know I've personally got a lot out of this month and hope you have as well. Well, everyone, you're dismissed. Uh, next month, actually next week will be the first Sunday of next month, and we'll be talking about apologetics, the reasons why we believe. I'll see you then. Bye-bye.